stay standing for just a minute. Morning, church. I'm Pastor Aaron. Thanks for continuing to stand. I, uh, you know, as we talk about being free, as we talk about Kyle getting up here, and uh, excuse me, I didn't know I was going to get choked. Um, we talk about Kyle being up here and talking about the sun shining because we're, you know, uh, waiting for that and the cloudy days. And I'm reminded of the KC-135 Stratotanker. You're like, Aaron, you're such a nerd. Um, you know, that you see flying, the, the tanker that you see flying around, around Topeka. Uh, Rudy Ballou's one of the captains in here. Sorry, Rudy, a shout out to you. Um, but I always think, what a job, right? We, fl- we flew um, back at Christmas time, my family and I, and my wife said, isn't it amazing that no matter what it looks like on the ground and how cloudy and how gloomy it looks on the ground, if you just get above the clouds, you can see the sun, and you can see for miles, and you see just the beauty of what's up there. And I, I'm always a little jealous when I see them flying around town, because I'm like, they get to do that every day. They, it doesn't matter what it looks like on the ground here, it's beautiful up there. And isn't that the nature of God? Like, He sees all of it. He sees the whole picture. And so as we shift this morning from talking about Onesimus' restoration, going from useless to useful, according to Paul, and hopefully in Philemon's eyes, we're going to backtrack a little bit to maybe a, a, a foretaste of what that was going to be when we talk about the restoration of Peter after his denial of Jesus. So this morning we're going to be in John 21, and we're going to focus in, John 21, that whole chapter talks about this restoration, talks about what's happening But in verses 15 through 17, we see the crux of what Jesus was doing to restore Peter. We see the big picture. We see the sun above the clouds. So it says this, if you'll read along with me, John John 21, 15 through 17. So when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, Tend my lambs, Jesus said to Peter. 16 says, He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, Shepherd my sheep. He said to him a third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, Do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. You may be seated. May God bless the reading of his word. Here it is again. Jesus, this incredible, he's Messiah, but he shows these incredible leadership abilities to bring the, the shameful mess that is our failed lives and our failed attempts at righteousness and holiness and to check all the boxes. And God does amazing things all throughout Scripture, not because of bringing us to a place of glory or bringing us to a place of recognition or acknowledgement or achievement, but to show His ability to take even the smallest, most foolish, most broken, most sinful people and get glory out of what He does through them. 
That's, in essence, what this passage is talking about. It's not necessarily about Peter's restoration. It's about the fact that God can use anybody, even someone who came pretty close to doing the same kind of denial and mess up that Judas had done earlier in this historical narrative. As we look at this this morning, I am just constantly reminded about how much we need restoration I'm constantly reminded also, and this is your main point for this morning, how God can repurpose even our failures, and wants to, by the way, how God can repurpose even our failures to lead us to maturity, spiritual maturity. And church, I don't know where you're at this morning, I don't know on your spiritual walk where you land if you feel like, oh, I'm doing pretty good, or I'm, you know, I messed up. And I'm, I'm just far away from relationship with God, but there's hope. There's freedom from that sin, like Eric was talking about, those kids, in incarceration, yet what resonates with them the most? Freedom. Freedom. Even in prison. Freedom. So God can repurpose even our failures to mature us. And I've got a few things I want to share with you this morning out of this passage, this brief passage. And what you need to understand about this passage is all of chapter 21 kind of exposes this, that we know, we're all familiar with the story of Peter's denial, right? First, he started out early on, before the arrest of Jesus, Peter starts out and he said, Jesus, I would die for you. I'm gonna. I'm. A, I would go to the. I'm go to the gallows with you. I'm gonna be there every step of the way. And Jesus knows, right? Jesus says, "No, actually, this very evening, before the night is up, before the rooster crows three times, you will have denied me." And we know the narrative in John 18. We know that he got to the point that the third time he was so adamant that he didn't know Jesus. Well, I, you sound like a Galilean. Some woman says. He was so adamant that he begins to curse in our American society and what we see on TV and in media. Can you only imagine the words coming out of Peter's mouth when he was swearing off that he knew anything about this Galilean that claimed to be the king of the Jews? And who among us, (laughs) who among us wouldn't get that scared and freaked out and possibly do something similar? So we, we know the narrative of Jesus' denial, right? What did, what did uh, Jesus' denial, excuse me, Peter's denial. That's the crux of this this morning, by the way. That Jesus didn't deny Jesus, uh, Peter's redemption, restoration. Let's pray and be dismissed. Okay. Um, <laughs> but what I want you guys to understand is, this is huge, is that after the resurrection... After it was all said and done, you've got this moment where all that they thought was going to happen, all that they thought was going was to expand the kingdom, and Jesus is doing this amazing thing, and then he was put to death. It was done. It was over. It was, that was it. That, there was a time in their life where they thought, well, he said he was coming back, but I, you know, I, I'm not sure where to go and what to do at this point, Peter's thinking. But guess what? What does Peter do? He goes back to what he knows, right? He's been the last three years in Jesus' private and public ministry. He's been the last three years doing exactly what Jesus said. I'm going to make you fishers of what? Men. I'm going to make you an evangelist. I'm going to make you a gospel sharer. And I'm going to, you're going to bring, 
you're going to bring in the haul. You're going to bring in the fish. But separate from Jesus being there, we see in the beginning of the passage, we see that um, what does Peter do? He goes back to what he knows, and what is that? Fishing. He goes out, and he tries to go under his own power to what he knew was, (laughs) what he was familiar with, what he knew he was good at. He goes out, he fishes all night, and how many did he catch? Zero. None. So they're out on the boat. They've been out there all night. We can only imagine how tired they are. They've already been through this crazy ordeal where they thought one thing, and then Jesus is arrested, put to death. And he goes back to what's familiar. They're looking out on the shore, the Lake of Tiberias. They're looking on the shore. Somebody's cooking breakfast. It just smells good, right? There's a fire going, maybe a smell of bread. We don't know if fish was there yet, but I think Jesus, they kind of recognized maybe that's Jesus. They go to the shore, get closer, and um, Jesus said, bring some fish. <laughs> and they're like, we didn't catch any fish. We've been fishing all night. We didn't catch any fish. And Jesus, in like form, of course, he's like, well, cast your nets on the other side of the boat. And what's amazing about this is they, under their own power, they caught nothing. There's, this is a sermon for another day. But... Jesus immediately is powering this fishing expedition, cast it on the other side of the boat, and they catch 153 large fish. Now, the case can be made that on the Lake Tiberias, you don't catch big fish like this. But 153 large fish could have weighed up to 750 pounds. That's pretty big, right? So in the passage, it says they pull this, they pull this in. Um... And it was a miracle that the net didn't break. Let's not overlook the miracle that Peter can haul in. He's this strong. He's made this strong. He can haul in 750 pounds of fish. If it was that much. It still was heavy. But under, do you think under, at this moment, do you think under, that Peter's thinking about God's power? If, and that recognizing this is Jesus just did this. And this was, this was even something I was super familiar with, yet <laughs> I couldn't do it without Jesus' power. Um, one of my favorite commentators, as we get into this, this moment where Jesus restores Peter, one of my favorite commentaries, Warren Wiersbe, says this, as the confession starts, as the restoration begins, as they're sitting now at the fire, eating after breakfast was done, as we saw in the passage, He says this about Peter. Not only is Simon Peter not degraded on account of his fall, he receives a fresh charge and commission. He receives a fresh charge and commission. The work of the fisher gives place to that of the shepherd. The souls that have been brought together in one need to be fed and tended. And this Simon Peter must do. Church, pay attention Because he's already working. Jesus wasn't thinking, oh, am I going to restore Peter? I don't know. He denied me. What am I going to... No. He's continuing the work. Peter was a fisherman by trade. And then in ministry, he was a fisherman, right? This evangelist. They're winning people to Jesus. They're bringing people into the family, into the kingdom. And Jesus never... It it was almost as if the, the death, burial, and resurrection was just a blip on the plan. Because the mission was to die for the sins of humanity and then be resurrected and then the church takes off. 
it explodes. And we see that Peter is changed now into from a fisherman to a shepherd. That main point starts to resonate, right? God can repurpose even our failures to mature us. One way he does this, Jesus, and we begin to see in the past, is that Jesus guides correct confession. Jesus guides correct confession. The passage here says this, Now when they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, Yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said, Ten my lambs. Now, and rightfully so, a lot of Bible teachers, when they teach this passage, we get locked in on the, the word for love that Jesus used and the word for love that Peter replies back to him with. In Greek, we know there's four different words for love. There's storge, which is parental love. Eros, sexual love. There's phileo, which is Philadelphia, brotherly love. And then there's agape, eternal, unconditional love that only comes from God. And so when, when a lot of scholars, when they focus in on this passage, they say that Peter answers, uh, Jesus asks, do you agape me? Do you love me with an eternal, unconditional love? And for the first two times, Peter says, yeah, sure, I phileo you. I love you, bro. And the third time, we'll get to that. But what I want to focus in on this morning is what is Jesus saying when he says, then tend my lambs. Shepherd my sheep. Shepherd my, shepherd the flock. We'll see that here, Jesus is guiding correct confession. He's here, this, he's showing Peter, listen, it's time for a shift. It's time for a shift in what you thought you were doing, almost like a platform ministry to, I want you to begin to focus in on these people that we brought into the fold. I want you to start being a shepherd, not just an evangelist that goes out and drops bombs and goes to the next city, but I want you to begin to tend to meet the needs of these little lambs, these young believers in the faith. You guys tracking with me? So, I think about this, and there was a book, there was a, a, a musician back in the late 70s, early 80s, his name was Keith Green. He wrote songs that we know, Oh Lord, You're Beautiful, There's a Redeemer, some other ones. Uh, his, he died early on, spoiler alert, sorry. He died pretty early in the 80s. Uh, he had started flying to the different locations where he uh, was doing his concert, and he just... His concerts were great. Uh, he was a pianist by nature, and he just he didn't like to sing without playing the piano at the same time. So he would just sit during these concerts, and he would play. Um, and uh, he he started out actually writing jingles for CBS, like in the early '60s, as a kid. And um, and then he would go around and do these concerts. We would sit at the piano, he'd play a song, and then he'd preach a little bit. Play a song, and he'd preach a little bit. Sometimes he'd go into local universities. And they'd have almost like a revival service. And at the end of the revival service, a lot of times confession would break out in the service. People would start yelling towards the stage. I, God, Jesus has convicted me of this. Or, or God's got me weighed down by this sin. And they actually were pretty neat services. The problem became, though, that a lot of the public confession that was happening in this, these services began to it border on maybe inappropriate for public confession, you know, public sin, public confession, private sin, private confession. And so Keith Green had to start kind of putting a, putting a pause on it, mainly because when you go into university campuses, a lot of times people would confess 
And he would hear later, they would confess publicly, but they'd go back to living their same lifestyle. They were using it as a confessional. And at some point in his biography written by his uh, wife, um, uh, called No Compromise, he, would, he states that they, uh, he eventually had to address it from the platform, that this wasn't a confessional. This was a time of repentance. So there was a time of changing not just your mind about the sin, but your heart and your actions. Jesus is doing this here with Peter. He's moving him from a self-centered, self-centric, um, maybe platformish ministry going, no, the job is shepherding. The job isn't about you, Peter. You're not the main character. We all have to remind ourselves that a little bit, don't we? He grinds correct confession in an attitude of repentance. He, Jesus is working on Peter. Do you love me, Simon, more than these? Of course I love you as a brother. Then tend my lambs. Secondly, Jesus instills a new passion. We see that God repurposes even Peter's failures into a new passion. John 21, 16, the next verse, same, sounds similar. He said to him again a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, then shepherd my sheep. It unfolds a little bit more. It's not just meet the early needs of new believers, but I want you to become a shepherd. You're no longer just a fisherman. I'm moving you to shepherd. Isn't that amazing that Jesus would take someone who, like I said earlier, almost committed the same level of sin that Judas did in denying Jesus? Maybe it wasn't selling uh, knowledge of his whereabouts for money. I think about this. I, I think Peter, and this is just speculation, would have begun. Something would well up inside him as he realizes that Jesus is giving him a new love for the ministry that is not necessarily lined up with his personality. Listen, I love to see people who love their craft. The people that love to do the work that they do and they do it with a passion. Do you guys appreciate that when you see it? Um, just they do great work because it's not just what they do for an occupation, but they do it because they, they just love it. I particularly look for a family practitioner or a doctor that's going to be my doctor <laughs> that loves what they do. Because when they love what they do, they're not necessarily just treating the symptoms. They're going to go back and they're going to treat the root cause. Um, I'd said this maybe my last message I got to preach to you all. Uh, going through cancer when I was about 27 and 28. And when I had to uh, go through radiation at first, the cancer showed back up in uh, 13 months later. And I had to do chemotherapy because it was just throughout my... It, I needed the chemotherapy to go throughout my lymph nodes. Um, there's a whole, I keep saying this, there's a whole other sermon for this, but uh, God's sovereignty had kind of helped my wife Allison befriend this lady in town. We had moved uh, from North Florida to, to St. Petersburg, Florida. She had befriended this nurse who was married to a chemo-oncologist. And um, she had babysat for them a little bit, Allison did, and, and, um, and also helped uh, their son with art just as a teacher helping him, and what was fascinating about their house, of course, they lived in this ginormous house, like, um, you know, the kind you walk in, you're like, okay, I'm out, you know, like, um, 
But in, in Treasure Island, Florida, they, they lived in this house. And as impressive as the house was, the most impressive thing about it was this two-story, like, legit library that was so, that was so um, much like a library that it had the rolling ladder, you know, where you got, oh, I got to get up there and get that book. And you're just like, okay, come on. But if you looked in the library, what was amazing about it was in the middle of the library, there's a reading section. And if you looked at this chemo-oncologist, all the stuff he had, he had, he had medical journals, he had, he, his reading, his hobby was also, not just his job was chemo-oncology or being a doctor, his hobby, his passion was medicine and the latest treatments, but also there were, there were old classical medical stuff in there too. He just, it, it, and I felt very comfortable that he would work on me and make me better, and he did. Um, I also have had a, when I moved from North Florida out to Topeka, I had a family practitioner and his, he loved, he was a wound care specialist. I won't get into it because I don't want people like falling out in the aisles, but he moonlighted during the day, he was just a family practitioner. At night, he moonlighted as he would go into nursing homes and help senior adults with wound care. And you're just like, man, what, what am I even doing with my life? You know? Oh. <laughs> uh, but anytime I got hurt and I had to go, you know, I, I hurt my fingers real bad one time and had to get stitches. And, and, uh, and uh, he always wanted pictures. Send me pictures. Send me a picture. So if you looked at his text thread, my wife, Allison, couldn't look at the text thread because she really would fall out. Uh, he'd like, send me pictures. And he'd want to look at it because he had a passion for what he did. The, as odd as it sounds, and by the way, his name was Dr. Forster, and I would, I, I would, he would covet your prayers. He, as a... Uh, doctor for his whole life. He has, uh, in the last couple of years, come down with multi-system atrophy, which if you're a doctor, you, you've seen the worst of the worst. Your body just begins to shut down. And, um, and so not that old, um, mid-60s, um, and just pray for him. Ed Forster, he probably wouldn't like me shouting him out in, the, in a sermon, but, uh, but he loved it. He had a passion for it. And Jesus here is instilling a passion in Peter, a new passion. Not just drop the bombs of an evangelist, that's great, but I want you to shepherd them. Also, Jesus here is saying, do you love me? Peter responds in the, I lo the brotherly love. Jesus is saying, do you agape me? A couple of weeks ago we talked about this, Tim talked about this, about how our, our righteousness, our desire to do things biblically should come from a place of love, not a place of duty. Remember him saying something like that? It's pretty simple, but it's hard in practice, right? Because sometimes you just do it because I know that's the right thing to do. But really our righteousness, our holiness should come from our deep love for Jesus. And Jesus is communicating this to Peter. This isn't just a job, Peter. This isn't just going back to fishing. I want you to love me so that you love my sheep. That begs the question, do I love Jesus like that? Do you love Jesus like that? Greg Laurie, another uh, just great commentator and pastor, he, uh, in this particular passage, he has a little like, breakout in, in his New Believers Bible that I, I just love reading. Um, and he asks the question, or he says, five ways we can know that we love him. This is per Greg Laurie. The first one is, these will be second on your, I couldn't fit them in under the point two, so I put them at the bottom. We long for personal communion with him. Ask yourself this question. 
Do I view my relationship with God as water or oxygen that I need? That it, my life is empty and gets bogged down when I'm not in communion or fellowship with God? When I'm not depending or leaning on Jesus, I'm reminded of Psalm 42, one that says, As the deer pants for the water brook, so my soul pants for you, God. Do we thirst for our relationship and our communion and walking alongside? Do we long for personal communion with Him? Second, in that five ways we can know we love Jesus, in that passion, we love the things He loves. Pretty simple, right? We love the things He loves. He looked on crowds with compassion. He loved humans, human life. Make of that what you will in our current culture. He loved the image bearers of his father. He loves, the cho- he loves his chosen people, Israel. As we look at what go- what's even going on now, we you know some some. Biblical scholars say, oh, the church replaced Jerusalem, now, or G- the Jews. Now, we, now the church is it. And I, I have to say, some of those Abrahamic and Mosaic promises haven't been fulfilled yet, and those are specifically to the Jewish people. And if we want all the blessing of the, of the Jews and of Israel, you've got to take all the cursing too. You've heard me say that before. We love the things that he loves. Human life, his chosen people, etc., Three, we hate the things he hates. We hate the things he hates. Sin. He hates sin. Any way you cut it, any way you slice it, any way you put a hierarchy on it, God hates sin. He hates pride. He hates the twisting of his creation. And by association, do with this what you will, Corrupting his design, his intended design, etc. We hate the things he hates. Another way we can know that we love Jesus with a passion is we keep his commandments. You know how I know this? John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And last but not least, number five, we long for his return. I call it the, uh, the Tesla test. I've said it before, you know, one of those things that I'd like to have in the future is some kind of just great, neat, awesome car, you know, and it's one of those things I do in my mind, well, one day, maybe when we retire, maybe I'll be able to get my Tesla. (laughs) And the Tesla test for me is, how much am I hoping that Christ doesn't return so I can get those final things? (laughs) Am I focused on, you know what, I want communion with Jesus, I'll, I'll, I can, I can take or leave, whatever that is. Retirement, traveling, a, a, a house in the future, or watching my kids get married, or having grandkids. You know, I think about, what's the Tesla test? Well, where am I with Jesus and my love for him? Am I like, oh, just hold off. I don't want to see you for a while, Jesus. I want to get that Tesla. That might just work for me. I'm sorry. But those are those five ways. Last but not least, and we'll be done. Jesus frames fresh mission How is Jesus repurposing uh, Peter's failures to mature him? He's guiding correct confession. He's instilling new passion. And he's framing fresh mission. Framing fresh vision. I think I wrote wrong on that. That's actually supposed to be mission, but it can be vision. 
Take your pick. John 21, 17 says this. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you agape me? Peter was hurt because he had said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, finally, Peter gets it. He's as hard-headed as most of us. Lord, you know all things, and you know that I love you. Jesus said to him, tend my sheep. Take care of the basic needs of those who are in the fold. I'm turning you from fisherman to shepherd. And all of a sudden, Peter gets it, I think. Jesus, like I said at the beginning, was not enabling Peter to do it under his own power. He was using Peter, a failed disciple, you could say. I know that's harsh. He's using Peter not because of who Peter is, but because who Jesus is. Jesus will get the glory. Years ago, I was working in student ministry, and I'm still fascinated by teenagers because it's not just their potential, what they can accomplish. It's incredible. Middle school play at Caraparaville this past week. Just to see middle schoolers just rock it and like be adults. And like, you know. In fact, you're looking down at the stage in that little auditorium, and you're like, oh, they, they look like adults. And then you go meet them in the hallway, and they're all like, itty bitty. Like, you look so much grown up and on stage. But what I love about student ministry and teenagers in particular is when God sets to move them, he moves them in a big way. And it's not the teenager. It's not the teenager that gets the glory. It is God himself because I was a foolish American teenager when I was a teenager. And, and when God chose to use me and he got the glory, man, God loves to use the foolish to shame the wise. And boy, does he use us when we are failed and we are desperate and we call to him. He gives us a new mission and we get to see what he's doing through broken, hurting lives. This is another reason we encourage you to get involved in a community group here at Cap City. I know I'm the discipleship pastor, so I've got to make this plug. So it's completely shameless. Um, but you could come every week here and do this, what we're doing right now, and still not really be able to be in communion with, well, the church family. You can be with God, but to really see and be actively involved living life on life in a community group so that you can see what God's doing in other people's lives. You can come in here every week and not hear what God's doing in other people's lives. Not even, you can get to know them with small talk, but... The community groups are that funnel, that focus. You, that's where you get stuck in a good way. That's where you stick in a church community is, yes, we're coming together, we're worshiping together, we're hearing God's word, but how do we, how do we begin to live life on life with people? And so we want to make sure that you're getting connected in a community group. We have uh, two or three new ones that are launching. We've got other ones that are established and they're open to new members. And so after the benediction, I encourage you that Discover banner back there. Go back. Find out more information about it. Put your name down. Let us know. And we'll get you connected with group leaders. Have them reach out to you depending on, you know, what day works for you, what side of town works for you. Um, but I just want to make that plug. Let's bring it all down to Christ. As we see how Jesus looked at Peter, even after his failure, through Jesus, God draws us to himself. You know, if it had been 30 years ago, somebody might be playing behind me, got, getting ready to play Just As I Am, the hymn. You know, that was like a pretty good invitation hymn. But G G through Jesus, um, G he takes us just as we are. He doesn't leave us that way. 
just like with Peter, Jesus shows us a future where we are restored, made perfect, and put to work in his kingdom. Not just here. We have Jesus' kingdom now, the church. But also there's a future physical kingdom coming where we will be used. We will have jobs as believers. Zechariah 14 talks about this. And we get to look forward to not just what Jesus is doing with us now as believers, but what he will do with us when that physical kingdom, uh, when he touches down on the Mount of Olives, when he rules the world from Jerusalem, we look forward to that. And the question here is, church, where do you stand with him? Are you wallowing in your sin, looking for happiness, maybe trying to be the main character, maybe even doing Christian ministry on your own power? Or will you allow Jesus to pick you up, clean you up after your failures, and as a maybe in a kingdom, as a vagabond, be brought to the palace to be um, one of the son or da- sons or daughters of the king? And if you would, just kind of bow your head. Shut out the people next to you. My believers in here, ask yourself that question. Am I trying to do it all under my own power? With Jesus as a, a sidekick? Or am I allowing God to work through me to realize the potential He has for me that He'll get the glory for? If I would just let Him work through me to move me from fisherman to shepherd. If you're not a believer in this room, ask yourself the question, what's stopping me from embarking on the greatest relationship I'll ever have in all of eternity? And that is with God, reconciled to Him in spite of my sin through Jesus Christ. Because the bad news is we've all sinned and fall short of the glory of God. The second part of that bad news is all that sin, the penalty for sin is death, Scripture tells us. But the good news is this, that Jesus came, walked among us, died on the cross for our sins, and then raised to life. And all we have to do is believe that the Bible is who, he says he, who he says, it says Jesus is, and we too can be saved. Heavenly Father, I lift up this time to you. I thank you so much that you are in the business of restoring those who have fallen, those who need reconciliation. I pray in Jesus' name that we will stop trying to do it all under our own power, seeking our own glory, hoping it will be an achievement that we can notch away. I pray in Jesus' name that you will power what you're doing on this planet, what you're doing in our own lives, and Father, I pray that in this city, that you, it'll be reflected that a bunch of broken, unrighteous failures of people can be used by you for great things. And that when we say we love you, it's not, yes, I love Jesus as my buddy. I love Jesus as my sidekick. No, it is a passionate love that is eternal and that is guttural, and that we cling to above all else. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.